All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Speakers Speak podcast. Today, I have Emily on with me, and I cannot pronounce her last name, so I'm not even going to try. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's Tisatrian. Uh, it's actually just a silent T. Other than that, it's pretty phonetic. It's Armenian. Uh, it means popcorn. Citrian. Citrian. Ah, the T is silent. Interesting. Okay. Oh, yeah. So you learn something new every day. Um, cool. So I found her on LinkedIn. Uh, she is a public speaking coach and she does a variety of other things as well. So that's why I got her on the podcast. And today she's going to hopefully give us some cool information and interesting ideas about the world of public speaking, which is why you are listening to this podcast, if you are listening to this podcast. So Emily, uh, please introduce yourself. What is your relationship to the speaking industry? And then we'll get into some more stuff. Yep, absolutely. So my name is Emily Citrin, as you mentioned. I am a, a serial uh, public speaking aficionado. I actually work in tech. I've been in the tech industry for about 10 years. Um, but ever since high school, when I was a debater, mm. uh, I really had uh, kind of a public speaking interest and uh, talent and passion. And so I've brought that to basically every role that I've had in the workplace. Um, currently, I lead a professional services team in the digital health industry. Um, but I've done public speaking courses, um, as a volunteer effort for women's groups, for underrepresented, um, kind of trade organizations. Um, I've led a training team, so had to teach people how to, uh, train adult learners. Right. Um, and then most recently I've done some public speaking work at some of the prisons in California, uh, working with incarcerated individuals to develop, uh, public speaking skills. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot there. So I, I'm going to get yeah. to some of the stuff at the end. Um, I want to start at the beginning. Uh, you did sure. high school debate. Are you okay with telling us how long ago that was? Yeah, certainly. Um, so I'm 34. So I graduated in 2003. So you can kind of do the math there. But yeah. It's, and it's what school a- did you do it for? Stevens High School in Rapid City, South Dakota. Interesting. Okay. The reason I'm interested in that is because I did high school debate. Um, I was on the mm-hmm. East Coast and I know it... Um, like in debate, particularly the West Coast, the East Coast, and the Texas area, those are the three major hubs of just a lot of schools that have consistently had debate programs. Some places like South Dakota is a little bit more out there in terms of they don't have a crazy debate history from my knowledge, but the fact that you actually were in a debate program is pretty amazing back then. Um, how did you- well, I, think, I think in the Midwest where the, the weather is not great, um, and if you're not really into sports, it's one of those ways to really entertain yourself during right. the colder months. Right. Um, it's kind of like the sports of the mind. So, uh, you know, it, it was a great experience. And I think it, it, I learned more really from debate than I think I did any other class. Um, yeah, and, and, and that's exactly what my experience was. Like the four years of high school, I, I really learned everything about philosophy, argumentation, communication, the research, the ability to defend and argue against an opponent, which is public speaking at a different level. Because you have public speaking of like telling a story about yourself, then you have public speaking of actually making an argument that impacts someone and defending it against opposition. So in terms of your debate career and, and how you learned a lot of it, what link did you see in terms of like the critical thinking aspects of taking a resolution and understanding it from an affirmative perspective, a negative perspective, and how mm-hmm. that applies to teaching other people how to think when it comes to public speaking? Yeah, that's great. So I'm not sure how it worked in your experience, but for me, it was um, you would show up at a tournament and yep. you didn't know what position you were going to have to argue yep. until about 20 minutes before. Um, and so you really had to develop a deep sense of empathy mm-hmm. and try to, to anticipate what your opponent was going to say even before you got up there. Right. So I think at its root, 
this type of public speaking develops that really deep empathy and the ability to kind of project what you think somebody else is going to say or how they're going to respond to um, what you're about to say. And, and that's a really, really important skill in, in basically every career. Um, so it, I think for me, it really started there. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, like the and, and that's how it was for me in debate. We would we would have to understand both sides and you have to do research on both sides because you don't know what right. side you're going to get. So that really, I think, forces you to, like, understand the other side's perspective, whether you agree with it or not, because you may have to take that perspective and actually argue it out. Um, and I think, you know, for young people in particular, I'm 22 now, but when I started debating at 13, 14, it was really like interesting to understand like i may personally believe in this but i'm going to go to the other side of the library because i have to understand that perspective if i want to ever be able to debate it which is an activity and an intellectual sport that i don't think happens in a lot of other arenas particularly for young people oh that's right yeah and you learn skills like how to read body language and right. how to um maybe use facts and and weaponize them in in a variety of different ways so um right. you, you learn skills that allow you to critically think and, and also really deconstruct any argument that's put in front of you um, so yeah, very beneficial. And, and this is kind of, uh, you know, my, my, my firm is, is called MBM communications and what we're, I have a debate background. So what we're really trying to do that I think differentiates us from a lot of the other speaking companies in the niche is use debate as a sort of pedagogical tool, um, particularly from the critical thinking, communication, argumentation perspectives to help our clients in ways that I think people who don't have a debate background, who haven't actually argued, but have only spoke, um, can can I think it differentiates us and I think it makes us add a little bit more value so leading from debate when you I guess my question is why did you continue to stay and do public speaking and actually help people after that experience even mm -hmm. though you're in tech now yeah yeah well absolutely so I've always felt that public speaking is is one skill that's very easy to hack yourself into a leadership position yeah Really, every career path you have, whether you're a software engineer, you're an accountant, or you're in construction, or you're in sales, if you are a strong public speaker, you can really uh, project yourself into whatever next level you're trying to get to. And so for me, you know, I'm I, at my core, I'm a very social justice -y person. I believe in, you know, leveling the playing field. I want to really see radical change in the world around me in terms of opportunity and access to wealth and power. Mm. And so I'm thinking, well, if public speaking is one of the ways to elevate yourself professionally and personally in many ways, well, this can be something that I can really share with the world to help other people uh, kind of gain this skill and then create the life that they want to have. Yeah, I, I think that's really the ultimate impact, right? Because once you understand the ability of how to effectively communicate for yourself, i.e. having an inner voice, giving the skills and tips and knowledge that you got to someone else and implanting it in them, I mean, that just leaves a legacy that compounds on itself, right? Because that person is going to feel so indebted because they feel so happy that they know how to communicate that usually inevitably, and we've seen this in debate, people come back and they try to help other people, particularly young people, to develop that inner voice. Because you, you don't build the next billion dollar company that actually solves global warming. You don't build the next nonprofit that changes the lives of, of young girls in India unless you have the capacity to believe in yourself. And that usually comes with a simultaneous need to communicate the things that you care about, which uh, can be gained through public speaking skills. That's absolutely right. And it's, it is something that, um, you know, there's an art and a science of it, yeah. but literally everybody can get better in some way. It's not like, oh, you have to go back to school for four years or, oh, you have to learn how to code. Or you have to, you know, learn this or that. 
there, there's fundamental building blocks. And if you do them, you will get better. So right. it's pretty magical in that way. Right. And, and I relate to that as well because of what you said uh, in, in high school, you know, if you don't have sports or the weather's cold, this is like the one thing you go to. For me, I wanted to do sports. I wanted to do music, all that stuff. I just wasn't talented in any of that stuff. <laughs> um, and, and when you come to that realization, you kind of try to deny it. Like I remember ninth grade freshman year, I was just like, I'm going to be a singer soon. And then you, you actually try to sing and you're like, fuck, like I really am not good at this. So like yeah. to me, <laughs> debate and public speaking is just, it is a universal form of communication that everyone has access to as long as you know how to how to speak even if it's in a different language and because everyone has access to it the variable of success in uh, being a better effective communicator is purely contingent on your ability to just work at it it's not contingent upon an intrinsic talent which to me gives it such a beautiful gateway to people who want to communicate ideas to the world they just can't because they can't sing or dance or whatever absolutely yeah it can be a great equalizer so i continue right. to be very excited about its potential yeah and, and the other thing about it, and I want to get your thoughts on this is, you know, I think communication is kind of the essence of, of our existence, right? There's a lot of things that are important, but our ability to communicate and express ideas kind of tie in the social fabric of humanity. What is your thoughts on like the ability to take an idea and, and turn it into something real by speaking about it? Do you think that creates a level of fulfillment in people uh, when they're able to have an idea in their head, like like they they went to the park and they had an amazing time at the park and they want to tell a story about that park. Do you do you feel like there's a a need for people to 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 be able to communicate those things in their life in order to give their life purpose at some level? I do. Yes. So storytelling, which is a, a form of public speaking, yeah. is you know the corporate America is kind of rediscovering this as being one of the fundamental skills that really everybody should have, particularly people in leadership or aspiring leaders positions. And storytelling is how we understand our own history. It's how we relate to um, other people. It's how we relate to our own culture. And so absolutely, if you are somebody with an idea or you have a, a proposal or you want to make the world a better place or even just make your, you know, your meetings suck less yeah. um, in the workplace, the ability to articulate what the problem is and then propose a solution to it and create that emotional connection to what you what you're trying to change is incredibly powerful. Yeah. And I think, and I think when, when, when we say, you know, you have an idea that you want to make real and articulate it, it's not just articulate it in front of 10,000 people on a TEDx stage. It's like, can you even speak it out to yourself? Does it make sense to yourself? Because if it makes sense to yourself, that creates the framework for then uh, you having the ability to feel like, okay, I just said it. I think it makes sense. I think I can see it. I can tell this story that I know is going to resonate with other people when I say it to them. And then you constantly go over it over and over and again. And then you become naive enough to believe that it's actually possible to implement it. And then and then you go from there. Um, all we have are our stories. That's it. We, that's it. All we have yeah. are stories and, and the memories of them. Um, I want to talk about corporate America. So why, mm -hmm. do you, why, why do you think leaders in particular in corporate America need to have not even just good public speaking skills, but good communication skills specifically to rise up the corporate ladder. Like why is that the variable that gets you to a managing director or president? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when you're in a leadership position, um, I think there's this misconception that you sort of have a lot of power and right. that you can kind of say something and people do what you say. It's not that way at all. You have, you, I do not. So I lead a team of about 15 people. I don't have any control over them. 
I, I can't reach through the computer and kind of like grab their wrist and tell them to do their job or to do it well or to show up at a certain time, especially now with the, um, the really unique challenge that we're having. Right. All I have is the ability to motivate, to inspire them and to challenge them. And the only way I can do that is through communicating, through storytelling and through, um, through setting that example myself. So when I look at um, really powerful leaders, it's not so much power by way of brute force, it's power by way of influence. Mm. And a lot of that influence comes from being a really effective communicator. And part of being an effective communicator is making people want to follow your example. And I think to make people want to follow your example, you have to develop an authentic relationship to the, to the things that you say. Right. Like the mission of your tech team, that's that that's 15 people long. They have to all buy into that mission. And even if they don't, you kind of have to manufacture the passion to buy into the mission, which only comes through the authentic articulation of you that actually has bought into the mission, which is why you're the one leading them. And they're the ones trying to articulate the mission. That's absolutely right. And so if you think about like the, the day in the life of kind of a normal manager or managee relationship, you have a really a one on one with them that's 30 minutes every week. So let's say somebody's working 40 hours a week. Right. I have literally half an hour with that person where I'm really connecting with them. And that's the only time that I have to influence the rest of how they're going to spend the rest of that 40 mm. hours per week. Mm. So it's so critical that you create that authenticity and create that influence and that trust so that they know how to um, direct themselves for the rest of that time, not to do what I'm telling them to do, but to do what they feel is the right way to achieve the mission that we've outlined together. Right. Yeah. That's really well said. I'm, I'm happier on the podcast because I'm, I have not been in corporate America. So I'm like, you know, I learned a lot from the guests who are on this podcast. So what you said makes a lot of sense to me. You're saying there's 15 people, you lead a team of them. You meet with one of them, maybe 30 minutes a week, which I'm assuming exists in, in most major corporations because right. the manager doesn't have time to like babysit right. and micromanage everybody. So in those 30 minutes, really, you have to have, a have to have a fundamental impact through the communicative strategy you invest in, in those 30 minutes for them to feel inspired, motivated, buy into the mission. But more importantly, understand that there is a task at hand. There are certain ways to complete the task, but ultimately they have to be innovative and, and like entrepreneurial enough in, in the organization to find a solution to get the task done, which leads to the overall mission because they can't be texting Emily all the time about how I do X, Y, and Z. What do I do? What do I do? Yeah, what do I, exactly, exactly. And I would actually take that a step further and I would say, um, it's not even so much that there's a task at hand. It's almost that there's a mission at hand right. and it's up to them to determine, well, what are those tasks that lead us to that mission? Mm. And the reality is they're going to know what the tasks are even more than I will as their leader, right. but they're not going to always know what the mission is. Right. So it's my job as the leader to articulate the mission, to connect them to the mission so that they are able to execute the tasks um, on their own. Right. And, and it seems like, you, you know, um, I, and I, I don't know if this has ever happened, but has your company or your larger corporation, have they like, I guess, kind of invested in professional development training for you to become a better communicator? Um, th I've been given a lot of leeway to kind of invest on it myself. Um, right. You're I just intrinsically that, good. They're like, Emily's, fine. We, got <laughs> we don't need to spend money on it. She got it. <laughs> because my, my well, point is when corporations, like if you were a sucky communicator, those 15 people would fall apart. The whole mission falls apart. So like, it seems like the ROI of the corporation d investing in your training is so mm -hmm. that those 15 people don't fall apart. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I'm really lucky that I have a lot of creative license to um, invest in that sort of training, how I see fit to, you know, achieve the desired mission and the desired outcome. Um, But this is, this is becoming very common in corporate America. I think there is a shift towards um, really empowering teams with this sort of what we think of as soft skills training. Um, It's kind of silly that it's, that it's called that because it's a hard skill to get. Um, But this, this is the sort of training that really makes a huge difference um, in outcomes as we're finding. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's definitely not soft. You know, I, I I mean, (laughs) I I don't think it's as complicated as literally coding, you know, major assignments, right? I get it. But I mean, it's also just like, cause I was, I was consulting with an engineer the other day, um, or actually last month before this whole coronavirus thing. And he had coded some code that like, uh, allowed, a, a, an electromagnetic shock to go to a paralyzed hand and like makes the hand flip up again. And it was like crazy. Like that's, wow. it's very hard to do. Right. And, and he, he was part of a group of four people that ended up developing this thing and it's in the works right now. And mm-hmm. I was consulting him on the presentation of it. And he was just like, I don't know how to talk about this. And I'm like, you fucking coded. <laughs> like, what do you mean you don't know how to talk about this? Like, you coded some ridiculous. Like, and so you very realize. Common. Very common. Right. You yeah. realize that, like, for them, it's really hard to articulate this thing. And and for for other people, it's just it comes a little bit more natural because they think of things. But I want to explore why it comes a little bit natural. I kind of have this thesis on life that your mortality we might get a little deep here uh end of your existence right the fact that you're gonna die to me serves as an existential motivator it provides all the anxiety and and weird feelings that you have as a human being on this planet to get something done in this lifetime for me particularly i've tried to take that thesis and apply it to how my firm uh, philosophically helps clients get over the fear of public speaking which is what i want to transition transition to next which is our idea is that if you're gonna die that should serve as a motivator for the fact that you have a limited amount of time, a finite amount of time to create a meaningful, purposeful life. And in order to do that, one of the pathways to meeting a purpose, as we talked about for 17 minutes, is communication. So the the fear is kind of irrational when you realize you have a very limited amount of time to actually say things, whether that's through singing or through speaking. Most people are speaking because most people can't sing in order to actually make an impact. And then you just have to buy into the fact that we should care about having a meaningful, purposeful impactful life if you don't buy into that then the whole thing falls apart what is your kind of thesis on that and how people can get over the fear of public speaking yeah that's that's a really interesting way to look at it i don't entirely disagree um but i think that there's a there's a spectrum of um kind of a naivete to mortality to really a, a kind of stoic acknowledgement of it um, one of the things that I've personally experienced anecdotally is, is those who have been either experienced something really tragic or really challenging in their life, um, or those who maybe are, you know, first generation Americans or those who have had, um, you know, single parent households or been around, um, some real human suffering and tragedy, um, seem to have a deeper connection to public speaking and storytelling than mm-hmm. those haven't. Um, So I think there might be something there in that being in touch with the mortality and the kind of fragility and and temporary and unpredictable nature of life um, can certainly have a connection to your innate desire and uh, ability to communicate and tell stories. Yeah, that's a a very interesting point. I mean, 
if you've had a hard life, you're more likely to... But I mean, it can go both ways. If you've had a hard life, you might have been triggered by it and you don't want to talk about that experience. Whereas a lot of other people, I mean, a lot of the most, you know, creative musicians, they the first three albums are the come up, right? The first three albums are all the shit they went through and then like how they got over that and now how they're reaching for success. And to me, that's really important because when you've gone through some crazy shit in your life, no matter what it may be, if it's affected you on a deep level, you've recognized that because life is limited you you don't want to live those days living in that suffering or tragedy that you experience no matter what spectrum it could have been it could have been really really bad or in the middle or a little bit but it still felt you in some way and yeah and that can trigger you to want to speak more absolutely so um i recently introduced a program at my company um that partners with a, a group called Year Up, which is a internship, a year-long internship program for um, young adults who are basically are very talented, but for whatever reason um, are experiencing an access gap. So they don't have access to power, wealth, you know, opportunities in, in tech um, that, you know, simply because of their zip code and life circumstances, right. um, they otherwise would. So we brought two interns uh, into our group um, who worked with us for about six months. Um, they were from Oakland, I believe both of their families were immigrants, um, from Mexico and had come from really, really hardworking, working class families. They both realized that this was their moment. This was their chance to break that cycle of poverty and to be the first person in their family that had access to corporate America, that had any sort of desk job and didn't have to work hours and hours during manual labor. At the end of it, um, I worked with them very closely to give a talk to our group about what they had learned, um, what their experience was, and what their plans were. Meaning you you helped them create their final presentation to all the your team? Yes, yes. Um, I will tell you there was not a dry eye in that room. I believe um, it. it was an incredibly powerful talk. Um, I think that it was it was life-changing for many, many of the folks in the room that had Um, really, really connected with them and bringing that authenticity and that it's power. It's really powerful. And I've, I have no doubt that they're both going to be just wildly successful um, and that they can make a huge, huge difference in not only their lives, but their family lives and their communities' lives. Um, But yeah, I would say, you know, because of their life experience that gave them a kind of a natural affinity towards being really effective and powerful communicators. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and you know, that ending talk that they gave and, and there not being a dry eye in the audience, I think we can think of that in a couple ways. One, that to me, metaphorically, is the exact same thing when it comes to mortality. It's like you have this one shot, this one opportunity, and in this case, in that little talk that they have to give, where you can have a genuine impact if you're speaking authentically and you know how to effectively communicate the experiences you, you've, you've had, which can lead to people not having dry eyes. And those dr- lack of dry eyes... If there's someone powerful who's listening, who starts crying, I mean, that leads to opportunity. And that's how most opportunity happens. It's like you have a genuine connection with someone who has influence, resources, power, and then is so influenced by that, whether they saw it through a YouTube video, whether they saw it in person, um, they were affected by that communication. And then that leads to another opportunity as well. And that's the same thing with life. I mean, you just have this one chance to make an impact, just like that one chance to to, to talk it out. And you got to hit it out the park sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Um, I want to just dive into a couple of technical categories of public speaking, just given your experience of it. For people who have very um, sort of like heavy, like we were talking about engineering, very hard data to communicate. Have you worked with any people where you were able to help them mold that data into something that was um, available for the masses to understand? 
Yes, I have. Um, so there's a couple sort of technical ways to be able to communicate um, really technical or complicated concepts. Um, one is to study um, work that's similar to, have you heard of the Zen of presentations or present, I think it's called might be presentation Zen. I actually, I, like I, I, I think it, it was it a book or something or uh, no, it it's, is this, that. It's, uh, it's a book, but it's kind of a, I think it's like a, a whole course of how to give really effective. Yeah. Um, so anyways, uh, some of the principles there are to really distill down a lot of text and a lot of numbers into like one or two images. And so if you were to look at a slide and you were sort of to see, you know, this, this like mathematical problem all drawn out, your brain is instantly trying to read it and trying to process. And you've, you've lost track of the speaker, you know, you're trying to write down notes, you're very much using the um, the left side of your brain to try to process the information. But if you like, what is your problem solving? So let's say it's, you know, this guy you talked to that made the, the paralysis. If you put up a slide and you showed just somebody's hand, that's it, just somebody's hand. Right. And then um, you, you ask the speaker to tell the story about a paralyzed person um, without movement in their limbs, suddenly being able to move it because of what had happened. I mean, boom, you're going to completely connect with your audience. And then you can get into kind of more of the technical aspects of, well, how did this happen? Right. Um, but you have to kind of go get into people's state of vulnerability first. Um, you can also use principles that are used in like stand-up comedy. So stand-up comedy has a, a rhythm and a pattern. It's like tension, release, tension, release. Right. And when people laugh during comedy, it's because it's funny, but it's also because it is that release. So your comedian will talk about something that's really uncomfortable or your comedian will just stop and create empty space. And then the very next thing they say is hilarious. Line, right? Exactly. And so, you know, simple, simple technique. Um, but every um, everybody can learn this and can can incorporate it into whatever they're talking about, especially if it's a highly technical concept. Yeah, I think the problem solving thing makes a lot of sense, especially coming from an argumentation background. Um, whenever we debated before we presented the solution to our judge, because you always have to solve a problem. Otherwise, what are you really debating about? You have to highlight the emphasis of the problem, which means you have to use storytelling or you have to use analogies and metaphors or symbolism, whatever you could do really to create a genuine uh, authentic connection that puts the face of the problem as the stakeholder. Meaning you're not just talking about 10,000 people dying because of global warming. You're talking about someone who had their whole life ahead of them and then they got into some carbon dioxide that shouldn't have been released because a company didn't care about what they were doing in an area where they don't care about the, the racial demographics of the people they're releasing uh, uh, bad fossil fuels. And, and then that resulted in a death and that's a bad thing. And that problem now intensifies through a numerical perspective and through a, a human perspective, which allows the solution to potentially fend off a lot of the objections, even if those objections aren't fended off from a technical level correctly. But from an emotional level, the judge or the audience already feels that the solution has to happen regardless which is important in sales right which is important it, yeah. it, like particularly i think one example for sales that i just thought of is, is like solar energy right like like when you're selling solar energy what you're really selling is a vision of not only trying to reduce a house's electricity costs uh in the long term even if it's not in the short term because eventually this is going to the, the costs are just going to be cheap and fossil fuel companies are going to go out of business but yeah. also from an earth perspective and if you can empathize with someone on like would you want your kids 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 which is gonna or which is gonna be your great grandkids to not have a planet because we were using gas when we could have been harnessing the sun especially if you live right. in california right like that is a way to sell someone on something that is authentic and genuine and has a real impact 
Absolutely, absolutely. Um, another implication that um, I just recently have gone through is I'm working with one of my team members. We're putting together a, a presentation where the whole point of this presentation is we're, we're going to ask for a resource, right? We're going to ask to like hire somebody to do a job that we know the job needs doing. Okay. You can't just go out and ask for it. You have to really prepare the story of why you need this. Yeah. And you have to, within that story, create an emotional tension as well as present the data and the sort of technical reason behind it. One without the other is not going to be complete. And then the other, the other technique that I find really helpful is if you are asking for something, um, I don't know if you've ever seen my big fat Greek wedding, but there's this, uh, I've heard the movie though, right? Yes, yes. There's this kind of very cliche uh, trope that they talk about where the women in the family, you know, are the neck and the, 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 the father, or the, the male is like the head. Yeah. Well, the neck controls the head. Okay. Um, now, any, this really has nothing to do with gender, in my opinion. Everybody <laughs> wants to feel like you are solving someone else's problem. Everyone loves that feeling. Right. So when you can give a story or give a presentation to where the audience, you're making the audience feel that they are solving the problem for you, you're going to get a better result and a better outcome rather than saying like, Hey, I want permission to solve this problem. Say, Hey, you know, what do you think about this? Knowing that you've already presented a really compelling argument for why it should be this way or why we should make this higher or why we should make this business decision. Um, and it takes a little bit of humility to approach things that way, but it, I, I find it to be very effective. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think of that particularly, I go to two things. One is the call to action at the end of a talk where let's say you're presenting on um, a nonprofit you started and how their $1 donation for 10,000 people in the crowd could literally fund another couple weeks of their operation. Or from a business perspective, when you're talking to a venture capitalist, right? Like when you're saying, look, your money is going to solve this problem. And we've already right. highlighted the necessity of this problem. We don't need permission anymore to solve it. You guys know we want to solve it. You know, there's opportunity on the other side of it it's you need to invest right if you don't do it someone else is going to invest and then it's going to be an issue oh right yeah i mean if you ever watch shark tank or something like that i mean it's it's an emotional all all investment is emotional they're investing in the founders you know i mean yeah you want to see the technical analysis you want to see kind of the the total market and the capitalization and, and all the finances but you're not investing from a technical perspective you're investing because you're really connecting with that story so you're you're absolutely right Right. And I think a lot of people, when they think of Shark Tank and when they think of um, business pitching and business presenting, a lot of times uh, I've heard people say it just comes down to, look, if the business is that good, then they're going to invest. It doesn't matter like how the presentation doesn't matter the story. Like if, if you have the next Facebook bar generation, it's going to be presented. It's like kind of you're right. Like, but the Facebook of the generations are one in a billion. But I, you know, I've started a new company and I'm starting to pitch not investors, but clients. And I realized like, I know it's a good idea, but I really need to invest in how I present this idea. Cause you have that one 10 minute, literally 10 minute meeting with a client and you have to have a story from a data perspective, from an empathetic perspective to get them to sign on. And if you don't, then you don't make any money, then, then, then it's over. So it's not just like, yeah, if it's a good idea, it's a good idea. It's like, like I really need to develop the articulation of this idea in order for it to even get funded. And we've seen a lot of people overemphasize the articulation of it and have shitty companies and get a lot of funding for, for shitty <laughs> ideas. What if you had a good idea yes. and actually could know how to communicate it and actually get real funding? Right? Well, right, right. And and if you're kind of an underrepresented minority um, in many cases, you're not going to have that sort of built-in bias that you're going to be successful. Exactly. You know, people like to invest in what they know. Um, most power and wealth is concentrated, let's be real, with straight, white, middle-aged men. Yep. 
that's what they know. And so we have to really work with underrepresented minorities that have, you know, if you believe talent is equally distributed, which how could you not, then you must know that we are missing out on so many great companies, so many great ideas, so many great CEOs, simply because we, ha we have a skills gap and we have an access gap. So kind of going back to, you know, the beginning of this podcast, if we can really leverage public speaking and communication to le level the playing field, we ultimately will have a better world. Right. And I mean, I think that's the ultimate mission. I mean, there's, there's no excuse why like 90% of people of CEO startups and founders in Silicon Valley are, are white men. I mean, like, that's just, that, that is absolutely yeah. absurd. No, absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at like, just, you know, the, the population of the world is not mostly straight white men. Right. <laughs> so, right. so until we get to like a true representation, um, you know, we're, we're, we're not making the best use of, of the resources that we have. So, right. And usually the reason why they end up being better communicators when it comes to venture capital is because they have all this built in confidence because they're expected to win. They feel like, well, how could you not invest into me? And the only way you build that is through generations of that confidence kind of trickling down. So like, the time starts now to get more right. women minorities getting there because generations from now that confidence hopefully will become intrinsic and natural and the system will have changed by then to the point where it's natural to see 50 percent of people being minorities who actually own companies who are in silicon valley who are negotiating billion dollar deals and not just the white men that we've known that's right that's right absolutely all right i think that's a great way to end this podcast this was a absolutely phenomenal uh experience i enjoyed a lot learning about corporate america at the intersection of public speaking with Emily. Are there any uh, final thoughts, any final words you want to say on just your relationship with public speaking or where people can find you if they want some consultation on this stuff? Um, yeah, hit me up on LinkedIn, Twitter, um, Instagram, and most recently TikTok. I've decided to join Generation Z and, you know, get into this uh, <laughs> this fun little, yeah, this fun little app. But yeah, absolutely. I'd love to really connect with folks and, um, and, and share the share the love. All right. Awesome. That was corporate America and public speaking, what the intersection of it is. And I think if you if you want to be a leader, if you want to develop leadership skills, I mean, I know that's super broad and there's a lot of people that talk about it. But I think if you got anything out of this podcast, it's that communication is the variable for success in corporate America, for success in leadership, which hopefully you will then take those skills and then give back to the people who truly, truly do need that confidence and inner voice to be able to make a change in their life. And if everyone keeps doing that, then we might have a chance of like this world peace thing. Who knows? But Hell yeah. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. All right. Thank you for being on the podcast. We'll see you guys next week.